Hey, it's Cole. Welcome to this week's episode of the Entrepreneur Podcast, where every week we talk about how you can bring your creative dreams to life. This week, it's an interview. It's with Albert Aziz Clausen. He grew up at the Royal Ballet School and then ended up in the tech world. He now started and runs a website called Underpin, and they help freelance creatives build a business around their talents. So this week, we're going to talk to him about his journey, as well as some really practical tips for how all of us can take our work and make it accessible to others. So this is that interview. Hey, Albert, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I know that growing up in a ballet world definitely teaches you to like press beyond the threshold. So let's just talk about that for a little bit of like, what has your background in the arts done to prepare you for what you're doing now? So I, I grew up as a ballet dancer from a really young age. So I started ballet when I was like three. I started because I have three brothers. We all did it. My mom just thought it's good for coordination. They listen to beautiful music. Like I wanted my kids to go do that. So we all did it. And I just kind of never stopped. And it became this big thing. I think what was weird about it is that it was very, very narrow. So in some senses, it was really bad for what I went on to do other, in other, in, in, like in later life because I didn't ever get to explore when I was young. But at the opposite end of the spectrum, it meant the moment that I stopped, I grabbed onto every tiny thing I could get my hands on. So I went from like, usually people, I think like, especially in the creative sector, you tend to start quite broad and you narrow into your niche. And so doing it the exact opposite way around where you come out like a kid in the candy store, you're like, I'm going to try absolutely everything I can get my hands on as much as humanly possible. And also, so I think that was one big thing about wanting to, making me want to really explore things that I might otherwise have not sought out because I was so desperate to find out all the things that I could do. But on a more kind of day-to-day how I work basis, I think the big thing for me was obviously ballet is very disciplined. Um, but I think that the element of discipline that's most important is the way that you take criticism and the way that you take people being negative. And I think I noticed that in other areas, the creative sector, it was a lot about your own free form expression. And in ballet, that's not the case. Like you are put in a box and you're told why you're terrible 25 times an hour and you need to live with that. And actually taking that to things that I did later on in life and thinking when someone criticizes me, even if it's invalid, like there is a reason that they've thought that and I should consider how I can change myself and how I can develop in order to change that perception. So I think the idea of thinking of criticism as a gift is one of the biggest things that I took away from ballet that has affected the way I approach everything that I do and allowed me to be a lot more open to people interacting with me in a negative way with whatever I've done. What inspired you from becoming a performer to start helping creatives find other work? So I don't, I, I actually, it's interesting that you called me a performer. I guess obviously as a ballet artist, you are a performer, but that's not really ever how I saw it. Because, I mean, when I was about 10 years old, I was asked to be Billy Elliot in the West End, which is really fucking lucky that I did because my voice is appalling. I mean, my girlfriend slams the door <laughs> on me when I'm singing in the shower. Um, but I, so I'm, but the reason that I chose to continue down the ballet route is because I saw classical ballet as more of a, a discipline and, a, and a, I guess I compared it more to the same idea as like a sport. Like I, I saw it as like I went into a classroom and I did. And the bit that I loved and the bit that I was engaged with was that like total isolated concentration on how to use my body. And the creative expression was actually kind of separate to that. So when I made the transition I didn't ever see myself as leaving the creative side of what I did. And I remember when I left ballet, I threw myself into videography and graphic design and photography and, and choreography and, and all these other different things I could get my hands on, which were really creative. Um, 
and I took the discipline that I had for ballet to those things. But I never saw ballet as a thing that I did that was kind of, it was never about the performance ever. It was about the building up to it and, and learning and developing as a person and overcoming all these different challenges as you build up what you're doing. So the transition was from ballet to the normal world was actually very quick. I decided I just wanted to stop ballet and I stopped. I literally didn't do another class after that. And then I went and I remember turning up at a normal school for the first time. And the school was like nine till 3 p.m. And I remember thinking like, what, what do you do with the rest of your day? Like, this is crazy. <laughs> There's so this much can't extra time. There's so much time. Like I was used to doing seven till eight, seven a.m. to 8 p.m. Like, every day. And then just like passing out. And so this idea that I had hours and hours to do whatever I wanted is what got me exploring. So at first I was exploring doing all these different sports and creative things and academics. And then I went and studied philosophy of science and fell in love with computer science, logical problem solving, founded a couple of businesses, founded a charity, started a business strategy consultancy as a freelancer. And then it actually had like nothing to do with ballet that, that, that brought me into doing what I do now. But I think what it was, was constantly being surrounded by creatives. So I spent my whole life, wherever I was, impassioned by creativity and loved the arts world and went to all of these things. But I knew that ultimately the thing that I was really good at was this kind of logical problem solving, putting myself in difficult, complex situations and helping sort them out. And so when I started to meet all of these different people who at first were just my friends who were going on to do cool, creative careers, but floundering horribly, despite being amazing and passionate on what they did, I started to realize that this was like quite a serious problem. And I ran this media and arts company where we helped thousands of people build businesses. And it was all about helping young and emerging artists commercialize their work. So for some of them, it meant commercializing their core work. For some of them, it meant commercializing their skills to support their work. Um, and at first it was just artists, but it started to eke out into the creative sector more broadly, like graphic designers, illustrators, journalists, consultants, even people like accountants who you think would know how to build a business. And I realized that I loved being embroiled in this world of creativity, but the thing that I was really good at was helping people build the kind of business infrastructure around it. So that then led to me kind of moving into this world and moving into Underpinned. Yeah, so can you tell everyone at home just a little bit about Underpinned and what you guys do? I would absolutely love to. If I didn't do all the podcasts, I'd be doing myself a big injustice. <laughs> um, so Underpin is basically a platform that teaches people how to freelance and then gives them all the tools they need to freelance. It's all the business building activities that you need to do around your craft. So if you're a you know an illustrator doing invoicing, contracts, portfolio development, lead generation, project management, insurance, accounting, all of the kind of business administrative bits you need to build a valuable business are done in Underpin. But I think the most valuable thing that Underpin offers people who are just getting started or moving into the freelance world is helping people build a structure and a framework to deliver value to clients and customers. When you work for someone, your value is kind of assumed because you take on the role of a profession, right? So you're a graphic designer within an agency. They worry about the delivering the value to the client. So that mindset change of, no, you're now the person who has to articulate, contextualize and deliver that value. Underpin's framework helps you do that really effectively. Talk about what you mean when you talk about adding value or bringing value to clients. So I guess one of the hardest things that people have to overcome when they start a business or they go freelance or they do anything kind of entrepreneurial is this, this kind of train hit of a realization that your craft, your profession, your passion, your idea is commercially completely valueless without the context within which you solve a problem for someone. And so one of the most common things I see, and you take like a really typical example of like a graphic designer, it's like, I'm sick of making logos. It's like, 
that's useless to anyone unless you can tell somebody how that logo is going to benefit their company in some sort of commercial context. Like when, when I used to deal with the kind of like pure fine artists, that's obviously a really hard thing to get over if you're producing something that's very conceptual that doesn't necessarily have an inherent commercial use. And I was saying something like, if you want to sell this to people, you need to show somebody you're solving a problem by making their living room look cooler, even if that's the problem you're solving. So the, the delivery of value is a lot about saying to people, hey, you can be amazing at what you do and never get a job. You can be a terrible graphic designer, and I bet you I can get you a job in two weeks by showing you how to contextualize that value within solving a problem for a client. Awesome. What are some of the ways that you've seen artists do that, maybe in some unexpected ways? Uh, oof, that's a good question. So one of the most interesting ones I've seen was about the way... So sometimes it's about... This, okay, this example is quite good. So this, this, this young woman who was a designer who wanted to go into doing alcohol label design, and her background was in doing um, logos. And the logos that she worked with were like quite like... Um, mostly for companies in the tech space who were looking at like millennial audiences. Um, and previously that she worked in a pub for ages. And she was talking to me about like, how can I get this job? And I have no experience in this, in this industry or this, this area. And I said, no, you're completely wrong. Like you have a really sick, massive wealth of experience. You just don't know how to articulate it very well. So I said, okay, you've got this graphic design background where you're dealing with exactly the same target demographic as the companies you're about to go and work for. So first, you need to tell them that you understand the demographic and understand what imagery they like and why they like that imagery and how they engage with it. And then if you can give them some stats, like look how much better pop art um, worked on Instagram compared to life drawings uh, with this demographic. So you can actually show statistically that your thing was more valuable. It's two, you worked in a pub for seven years, which means you had on the ground experience of how people interacted with labels on like bottles. So I got her to create this like three sentence proposition, which was all about, I'm a graphic designer that specializes in engaging millennial, with millennial audiences with a seven year experience on the floor, looking at how people interact with labels on bottles and how it, uh, seasons and temperatures and fucking weather affects how people engage with it. And I noticed that these things were particularly effective and these things weren't. I'm now combining the love of graphic design and interaction with customers to create the ultimate experience for labels on bottles. And it was like, that's making them the center of the proposition and removing you. Yeah. You, you're working with creative people all the time, but I think a lot of times creative people think that their creativity is in one thing. And what I hear you talking about is expanding the concept of creativity to a lot more things. What are some of those things in that list of, okay, you have the ability to think creatively, put that ability to think creatively to work in these areas as yeah. you're building your creative business. Okay. Okay. So let's get really boring so in the like in the like 1900s you get like this big development of the victorian mechanistic workforce you get the invention yeah. of the suit in the late 19th century like the purpose of people is to fulfill administrative roles within massive enterprises like slowly but surely mm -hmm. that's not the case anymore when somebody comes into a company even if you are an accountant your responsibility to deliver values is a, to deliver value is around creatively solving problems for the business, which might have a very administrative purpose, but the way you engage with it can't be. So I think first is to think of the way in which you interact within a commercial environment as being an inherently creative thing by itself. You're unlikely to make invoicing creative, but the way in which you engage with a client around how you send your invoice and ask for feedback in that process can be creative and engaging. And I think that one of the things I notice a lot of people in the early stage of their careers do 
to their great detriment is try and be super formal about everything except for their craft. So they go, I know I'm super creative illustrator, but everything else that I'm a bit nervous about, I'm going to be really straight laced with. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed, the people that are successful is when they, their personality shines through in their emails, their personality shines through in their contracts, their personality shines through in their the way they design their brand, all the different things that make their business have a kind of creative input in that. And that doesn't necessarily mean to be a, a piece of design. It might just be the way it's written or the way it's presented. But I think having creativity throughout the way you approach problem solving as a whole is what's important. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because recently we did an episode about how every artist has PR, whether or not they realize it. And there's a story that I thought about afterwards that I wish I had told. It's a rapper that I'm friends of friends with. And he would go into label meetings with a bottle of alcohol, pour everyone's shots in the meeting and play his music on a speaker and dance on the table. And he ended up getting a big record deal because everyone remembered him. Like, oh, he was the fun guy. It was like a party. So when you say that, that just came to mind. That's a a really funny example because I spend a lot of time in the like entrepreneurial startup world, you get you get this thing now. It's like the people that people want to give money to are the people that look different because it's like I, I want to I want to associate or identify with somebody who is like changing the game in some way. And so just like having a tattoo is like something that they can do that other people in my world can't do. So I want to do that. In the creative world, like everybody has tattoos and everyone looks different. And everyone's got their own things that they want to wear. But I think that thing of the worst thing you can do is be boring. And it, like a great another example of this is portfolios and CVs. People have this horrible, um, I don't know where it comes from. Actually, where do you learn this? Like wait, maybe it's at school where you're just told like this is the framework you make a CV. And no, people just Google it and pull up like the the Google template. Everyone sends the yeah. same one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just mind-numbing. Like if you're the person looking at those, no one stands out. Be the person that's made your CV interactive and engaging and interesting. And that is what will make you stand out. Like when I walk into a room, I make sure I never look like anyone else in that room. And I make sure I'm super loud and obnoxious as you might be able to tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, I have a question about that. Um, you know, growing up for a lot of boys in ballet, there's there's some pushback to that culturally. Um, yeah. Do you Did you experience any of that? And if you did, do you yeah. think that kind of gave you a level of grit that allows you to kind of have that attitude? I don't know. This is a, I've thought about this a lot, both by myself with my therapist and friends. <laughs> but I think that uh, <laughs> I think that like I grew up. I was I would say I grew up um, quite arrogant, and I think that I was arrogant that it very much masked my insecurity because I was bullied so badly like, my yeah. whole life, and also always super isolated. Like doing ballet the whole time is very isolating. Mm. Um, and so I, w- I think that I grew up with this kind of arrogance of putting up a shield to like push people away because I was like, I don't, I don't want you to take the piss out of me. So if I'm loud enough and I'm, I'm annoying enough, like I'm annoying anyway. So it doesn't matter what you say. And then <laughs> there, was like a, <laughs> there was like a turning point where I started to feel genuinely confident in myself. And I realized that the, the, the change from like arrogance to confidence is the change of being secure in who you are and what you do. And I think that took me a really long time to get over. And I think that a big part of my drive initially was I'm so scared of failure or I'm so wanting to never let other people be right about me that I'm going to keep pushing myself, which is also super unhealthy and ends up meaning you're always unhappy. And then I think that there was like a big change then starting to feel a bit more confident and happy in myself because I realized that actually if you are just who you are and you are really confident in yourself, 
it kind of is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like then other people see that as that. And then, and the other, there was like a, there was one of the big turning points in that was when you stand up and say to somebody, yeah, of course I am. Yeah, of course I did that. Yeah. And then, and then they're like, but you're supposed to respond badly to this. And I think <laughs> yeah. when I realized that I could just own anything I do ever, I can now be the weirdest motherfucker in the world, but I'm just going to own it. And it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think people, um, accuse you of something and you just say yeah that's me yeah like, there's not a lot of uh good comebacks to that <laughs> no yeah 100 i feel like there's a really maybe an appropriate example i won't give the specifics of it but i remember like playing like a never have i ever game when i was drunk with some friends someone saying something and me like immediately taking a drink and then be like what and then me turn around and everyone be like what none of you have ever tried doing that and then we'll be like <laughs> well, i don't know what to say now he's kind of owing that so much that like i don't know what mm. to go with <laughs> yeah for sure. A little bit of what you just talked about has to do with that process of kind of sussing out your your authentic self and your true identity. And I think a lot of artists and a lot of people in the freelance world are kind of in a constant process of doing that. What was that yeah. process like for you? Like what were some think- of the helpful things that helped you move down that road and discover some of those truths about yourself? I think I had, I was lucky in that, that thing I was talking about earlier. So when I left Bali and I went to try all these different things, I loved putting myself in a situation that was uncomfortable and then like making it feel comfortable as quickly as possible. Like, how can I make this situation feel comfortable for me? Whether that's learning how to play the piano or it's flirting or whatever it is. Like I, I want to put myself in an uncomfortable position and then I want to make myself feel comfortable. So I think that the, the process of finding that, confidence came from like constantly putting myself in enough positions where I was uncomfortable and could solve it to the point where I was like I feel like I can I can do anything now and if I can't I can say that that's okay and I, I think that I, I don't really know maybe I haven't still I, I think that there's like a, a sense of I felt like I was feeling I felt I think I really found myself when I started to feel confident in in doing my own thing that was like the big thing is stopping wanting to do what other people was, was said to do, which is like a different to not taking criticism. I still always take on board the advice that people give me. It doesn't mean if someone says you can't do that, that I suddenly go and do that. It's like, oh, why? Like, let's unpack that. I want to learn about that. But I think it's only like, whatever happens, I might fail. I might be, I might not, but I want to give it a go. And I want to go through that journey. That was super badly articulated. I really don't know if I haven't answered that question. <laughs> that's fine. I mean, that's good stuff. You talked about the process of kind of moving into things that you are passionate about or things that you care about. And yeah, but I, I think, think that's a big part side, of it. Like for a lot of creatives, for a lot of, a lot of freelancers, for a lot of people who doing their own thing, that process is also super damaging to talk about because there's so many people that say, chase your dream. Your dream is a lie. Like your dream will never be what you thought it was when you get there. Yeah. And a good friend of mine, I use this quote all the time. He's, he's like a product manager at Spotify. And he, he always says to me, like, you know, you imagine it was 100 by 100 square and you just got like one square now. Like, stop trying to think about what the other squares are. Just get to the next square and see what the shape is made. And I think that was, that's a big thing. So when people say, like, follow your dream, follow your passion, just do what you want to do, that's kind of dangerous. It's like, you need to be making some sort of focused effort to make incremental progress in a sensible way, but have something that motivates you that's going that's, that's ahead of you. 100% for sure. All right. So as we wrap up, um, how can people find you online? How can people connect with Underpinned? So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, any social media, you type it Underpinned, Google type it Underpinned, you will find us. Um, if you're interested in starting your journey into freelancing, we have a 
a course called the ultimate guide to freelancing which i'll give you guys a discount code for um which is just kind of an eight-week course teach you everything you need to know to build a bang bang freelance business but yeah check us out type in underpin you will find us cool man thanks for joining us have a great day thank you so much have a lovely yeah lovely day it's now my night time (laughs) (laughs) thanks so that's our interview with albert aziz clausen from underpin check him out online and as always thanks for hanging out with us on the entrepreneur podcast we'll see you next week